0: One, two, three, go. Feminist Mormon House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Feminist. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing Mormon. you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage and learn the history and see how it affects us today. And I'm excited to bring on a guest. Uh You might have heard of her. Her name is Kate Kelly. Kate, can you say hello? Hey, thanks for having me. Kate, I brought you on to talk about polygamy. Yay. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> so Kate's going to be on a few more episodes. We're going to talk about human rights, but that one's going to be in the queue for a while because we have a backup of regular episodes I got to get out there, but uh I've been wanting to do this episode with Kate for a long, long time because I don't know if you know this about Kate, but she loves the topic of women's suffrage, especially in the United States, correct?
1: True. Very true.
0: And we want to talk about how it interacts with Mormon polygamy. I've been sort of teasing this in other episodes, but Mormon polygamy and suffrage are really connected.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, actually. Um, how tied they are.
0: Well, Kate, first, let's, let's give everyone a sort of background of why this is such an important subject to you. Do you want to tell us okay. about that?
1: Yeah, actually, this is a little more touchy-feely. I want everyone to remember that I'm not a historian. <laughs> I'm a human rights attorney and an activist, but I'm not a historian. So if you hear any mistakes, just leave it in the comments because there probably will be mistakes. But actually, I've been listening to your... Uh, women in polygamy series. And I just, I love the podcast. I listen to everyone and I pretty much hate all other Mormon history. Like, I'm just not interested. And I realized the reason I was thinking, like, why do I just love Lindsay's podcast so much? (laughs) And I realized, like, I'm just tired of hearing stories by men about men. Like, I'm just tired of it. I'm not interested. I don't want to read books by men. I don't, you know, it's not like I don't. Yeah, I, I appreciate what they have to say. And, but I'm like, I think I need to spend like the next 30 years listening to stories about women. And then when I'm 63, then I'll go back. <laughs> so I just really, really love, um, hearing stories about women. And I'm not that interested in other
0: types of history, but I
1: love, love, love suffrage. Um,
0: yeah. Well, and I just have to say for me, and thank you for listening to the podcast, Kate. Uh, <laughs> for me, it's really, what I really like about it is I'm surprised at how much I draw out of every single person's personal experience. There's always something that I'm like, Hey, that's like me, or I can relate to that, or what can I learn to that? And I never really felt like I had that experience listening, um, to history about like, say, Abraham Lincoln. I was inspired or whatever, but I didn't relate to it. And I'm, and I'm wondering now, like, is that what men have done? They just like internalize they can relate to a story about men. Cause I just, that's not what I did. So.
1: Well, and like, you know, when you're the protagonist of every story, when you're a young boy and you're in primary and every story is about people like you, men, saving the day or being brave or, you know, doing all these things, of course you're going to think that you're capable of being brave and, and courageous and all these other things. Whereas women, like, where do we hear those stories? You know what I mean? Like some yeah. very famous people we're going to talk about today. Like very key to the suffrage movement uh you'd never heard of, probably, and you know, I don't know i just i just, i I'm very interested. I went to a law school that was founded by two suffragists. They founded the law school uh because women- weren't permitted to attend other institutions uh one of them actually got a degree at Howard University because Howard was a traditionally black college, and they allowed women, even white women, to attend and then she started her own law school for women at the turn of the century which is just crazy um and so those are the kind of stories that I'm very very attracted to and I went on a I went on a uh, this is very 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 nerdy but I went on a feminist history tour with my husband <laughs> in upstate New York and we went to a lot of different sites about women's history including the Susan B Anthony House Um, which is in Rochester, New York. And in Susan B. Anthony's room is a black uh, silk brocade dress. She only wore black. And it it was a gift from Mormon women on her 80th birthday. And because, you know, there was a cottage industry of silk makers in in Utah that Brigham Young started. And they sent that silk to Susan B. Anthony to make her dress.
0: So there were a
1: lot of connections. Yeah, it's amazing. Like if you have a chance, you should go. And if not, look it up online because it's really, really cool.
0: Yeah. And you know, the sad thing about about this to me is when I found out about this, I was super proud of it. It wasn't, you know, the sort of history you find out about and you're shocked and it's face shaking. But I was shocked and it was really sad to me because it was, you know, uh, what uh Mormon women today kind of struggle with the term feminist. And I grew up sort of hearing about pioneer women like this. So... That wasn't shocking, but kind of awakening myself to the divide of then and now and how different it's become, that's the sad thing to me.
1: Yeah, that's actually, you know, the, the period we're going to talk about today is actually kind of some people consider the golden age for Mormon women because of their role in the church and their role in society, and they were so high profile and they were so
0: important.
1: And so it's actually gone, in my opinion, downhill from there.
0: So Well, so bring us in. Let's start with, um, let's start. Can Oh, before we start, I do want to say that I've asked Kate to also come back. We're going to talk about individual suffragettes later on because I want to highlight their lives too, but I've got to finish this series first. So, and Kate's going to be my like researcher on this. Uh, she's, she's done this great outline. So we are going to get more in depth to these other women, um, later on. So stay tuned. Do I want
1: to? Yeah, I wanted to just give a little bit of context about the, and you've talked about this in other podcasts, but about the time period that we're talking about. You know, on this feminist history tour that I did, I went to the grave sites of Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was an abolition leader, and they were really great friends, but also very divided on the issue of race. Um, So I guess they were frenemies. <laughs> and if you think about upstate New York, where the suffrage and the women's movement started, it was this really crazy, interesting, like amazing time where there was a confluence of all these different issues, suffrage, abolition, you know, the Underground Railroad went through there. It was the last stop on the way to Canada. And there were a lot, like the country as a whole was deciding who is a, city, who's a citizen, who gets to vote in a lot of ways. So in 1863, we have the Emancip- Emancipation Proclamation. Um, in 1865, the Civil War ended. And then we get the 14th Amendment in 1868. So that's um, all persons born or naturalized are into the United States. So basically, if you're born here, you're a citizen. And at this point, you got to keep in mind, like a lot of people, aside from the Native Americans who were obviously here, First, and were the only naturalized citizens. Other people coming were from other countries. And so then we get the 15th Amendment where people get to vote and they're not banned based on race or a previous condition of servitude. Then we get, finally, in the 1920, we get the 19th Amendment where uh, women across the nation are permitted to vote. So we have all of these different questions about Uh, race and slavery just ended, you know, within all of these people's lifetimes. And, you know, we have also the question of sex. We have, you know, people like Ida B. Wells, Barnett, who was a suffragist, but also was born into slavery and was the founder of the NAACP. And we have, you know, a lot of clashes between all of these groups. So it's very complicated. You know, in the suffrage parade, there's there's the big famous suffrage parade that Alice Paul planned. Um, and in that parade, the women of color were asked to march in a segregated unit. Um, and Ida B. Wells, she refused to do that and she slipped into the parade elsewhere. So there were, there were just a lot of really, really complicated questions going on at the time. And at the time, there was a huge national cause of anti-polygamy. And you've talked about this and the anti-polygamy legislation just previously in an episode. But, If you think more, the Mormon moment is happening now, (laughs) it was actually (laughs) happening then, I think, much more. Like Mormons were huge in the news. Everyone was really fascinated by polygamy. There were books about it. There were articles about it. Like it was being written about in the New York Times. There was legislation in Congress. So Mormons were very, very much on the national stage and in the national dialogue.
0: Well, wait, I want to back up on one thing you said, because our community is talking about this right now, especially feminist born housewives and how white feminists deal with issues of race and its attention. Right. And of course, it's always been attention. You can read essays of black American women talking about white feminist issues. So, of course, this is an issue for suffragists dealing with issues of color, can you just tell me why they uh, would keep it segregated? So their thinking was the vote was for white women only, or what was that so about?
1: The the big, in my understanding, the big clash, um, and we can, you know, basically there were initially, so I'll, I'll just go into the suffrage a little bit into the suffrage movement so we c- I can help people understand what the clash was. So the national suffrage movement started with the 1848 convention in Seneca Falls. So that's one of the places I went on this history tour—it's in upstate New York. So in
0: '48, had- you got to think the Saints are heading into winter quarters and heading over to Salt Lake City.
1: Right, yeah. right. I mean, actually, Palmyra is very, very close to Seneca Falls. So at that point, of course, Joseph Smith has had already left and and moved out. He he moved to Kirtland in 1831, but it was actually very close. They're very tied. And so they had the first convention in Seneca Falls and it was, you know, designed to discuss they they said a convention to discuss social civil religious condition and rights of women. And so they had this convention and then in 1866 at the 11th convention they kept ha- they kept having that every year they formed the American Equal Rights Association. So that was the national the national organization. However, in 1869 they split. So there were some suffragists, like very famous ones, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who opposed the 15th Amendment, unless it included the vote for women. So they didn't want any amendment to pass unless it included the vote for women. There were a lot of reasons why. they It's very hard to pass an amendment to the Constitution. They felt like that would defeat them. They felt like if black men got the vote and women didn't, uh, it would it wouldn't help their franchise, it wouldn't, you know, black women still wouldn't have the vote. And so they opposed the 15th Amendment period. So they founded what's called the National Women's Suffrage Association. There were other women in the movement, like Lucy Stone and Julia Ward Howe, who were staunch abolitionists. Actually, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were also abolitionists. But the other group, were staunch abolitionists and they supported voting rights for black men and they thought that the 15th Amendment wouldn't pass if it included the vote for women and so they thought it would put it in jeopardy. So they were willing to support the 15th Amendment without without their uh, votes for women. So they split. I mean, the, you know, you think in Mormon feminism today, like there's all these different different groups that do different things and some people do one thing and some people do another and I think a lot of people think, "Oh, we have to stay you know totally united or we'll never achieve equality." I'm like,, ah, you know, sometimes you just do different things and it's fine <laughs> so and that happens in every movement, so they split the 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 national organization split into two groups: one supported the Fifteenth Amendment and one did not um for obvious reasons, most of the black uh suffragettes supported the American Women's Suffrage Association because they, you know, because it supported the enfranchisement of black men who are their husbands and brothers, and they wanted them to also get the vote. So there was a huge divide. And that's why I say, you know, um, Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony were really divided on this issue, because it's not that she didn't want him to get the vote, it's that she didn't want him to get the vote and her not to. And so, at you know, and at this point, black women were, you know, and black suffragettes were in a bind because, if both didn't happen, then they would never get the vote. And so, you know, they, they joined more with the American Women's Suffrage Association. And there were also, the other difference was the national organization, as opposed to American. The national association wanted to do a national constitutional amendment. And the American group that supported black men's suffrage, they wanted to do a state-by-state campaign. So they had different tactics. One was um, really focused on the state-by-state. Um, movement, and then the, the Susan B. Anthony's were focused on, uh, the national, you know, just one constitutional amendment. So, as you can see, because the group split and because one supported suffrage for black men, there was a huge divide, and, and women of color, uh, were really caught in the middle of all of this. And so, I think, like you said, there's, there's still very real and deep problems with racism within the feminist movement. And I think it has some pretty deep roots based on, based on this.
0: Yeah. And, uh, in an upcoming episode, I'm going to be talking about some of the, the Mormon lynchings that happen, which is a really, it's going to be a hard thing. But of course, this would be an issue that would, that we, that we're still dealing with today. And more, it would, like you said, Mormon women are kind of, the pawn, the political pawn that's caught in the middle of all of this, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and yeah, and I mean, Ida B. Wells, the woman I talked about earlier, who was a suffragette, she also was an anti-lynching activist. And she was, you know, just summarily courageous um, to be a a woman who was born into slavery, who led an anti-lynching campaign and was a suffragette. Um, I mean, she was an amazing woman. She was not Mormon. But I think, you know it's it like I said, a lot of women just get caught in the middle of of all these things, including Mormon women, as we're going to talk about and it's It's just a real struggle for women to speak for themselves to assert themselves in all of these like very complicated political dynamics and actually, in eighteen ninety the same year as the manifesto ending polygamy, the two groups that i said that I was talking about that split the American and the national merged. Because, like I said, the 15th Amendment had already passed, so that was behind them. Black men got the vote, and they merged together to, to join. And actually, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in, in her speech, when the groups merged, she was, she became the president of the two groups, and she mentioned Mormon women in her speech, because a lot of the people in both groups had tried to keep Mormon women out, because they were polygamists. So they, the, the the suffragists, Uh, The national suffrage cause, a lot of the women thought that having Mormon women involved would hurt the cause, including uh, Susan B. Anthony. And so she thought because they were polygamists, it would really damage the image of what suffragettes were. And so they didn't want to include them.
0: Yeah, and this Uh, is something that I'm trying to always get the listeners to remember when we're hearing these stories about Mormon women is... It took a certain amount of courage to be a polygamist. Sometimes they were locked in this sort of myopic frontier life uh, where they didn't see a lot of outsiders. But for many, especially, you know, the ones who had to publicly talk about their relationships and defend polygamy, this was a huge stigma that they were risking in Victorian America. It was a huge deal.
1: It was a really, really big deal. Um, and even the suffragettes, the Mormon suffragettes who Rose to great prominence, like emmeline b wells um because she was a polygamist wife, she was often banned from speaking if she went to a conference, a national conference, they would try not to let her in they were there were votes whether or not Mormon women could even be members of these national organizations because they were polygamists. And again, this is a huge national issue. It's not like no one knew about it. Like it was very, very prominent. And so Mormon women were really discriminated against because they practiced polygamy.
0: Yeah. When we talk about intersectional feminism, race is obviously one of the big ones, but religious discrimination fits in there somewhere too.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, a lot of people, there was a, really prevalent perception of mormon women in the mass media that they were oppressed that they were downtrodden that they were you know these slaves to their husbands and there there was a really negative public image of them and that's not how they saw themselves and so again it's a question of mormon women telling their own stories like uh elucidating the situation in a way that made sense to them was very difficult. And you you also have to keep in mind that, you know, in 1830, when the church started, there was an official meeting and, you know, there was like 40 to 50 people there and they voted under the laws of New York State whether or not to accept Joseph Smith and to form a religion. And the meetings, the minutes of the meeting recorded unanimous consent, and that includes women. So from the literally from the first day of Mormonism, women were allowed to vote and participate.
0: That's a great way to frame it. I like that.
1: And so it's it, there's this national perception of them being oppressed and downtrodden, and there's their individual perception of we live very complicated lives, um, where some of us are the seventh wife of one man, but within our tradition we feel respected. And we feel like we have more of a voice than a lot of other women. You know, a lot of religions started with no input from women, um, but that wasn't the case for Mormonism. And so it's this funny, it's this really funny contradiction where the national uh, stage sees Mormon women in one way and they see themselves in a very different way. So maybe uh, what would be helpful is turning to the Utah history, um, because that's really what we're talking about here when we talk about suffrage and polygamy. Um, Utah was a territory so the saints moved west you know in 1847 we have the days of 47 they arrived in Utah and actually pre-territorial status Mormons had their own type of government there was no federal oversight they were just you know on Ute Indian territory essentially and in that pre-territorial government women were allowed to vote so it's interesting, because all along, Mormon women are saying, like, hey, we 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 feel included in our society. So 1847 to 1850, um, essentially, they were allowed to participate at some level in the government that was their own government. Um, in 1850, the territory was created by an act of Congress. So that was, you know, originally, Utahns wanted to have Deseret. <laughs> that was Brigham Young's idea, which Deseret was basically, like, all of Utah, all of Nevada, basically all of Arizona, large part of California, Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Colorado. So it was like a, a huge swath of the West. That's what he wanted Deseret to be. And that was not, that was rejected um, by Congress. They became a territory, but it was basically just Utah, Nevada, and like a little bit of Colo- Colorado and Wyoming. And so there was this really, um, there was a tension between the national government and Utah because it was so far out there and it was all, almost exclusively populated by native americans obviously and then by mormons um so they were on their own they you know brigham young basically just like ruled the territory and the government operated largely um by the church you know the all of the leaders of the church were also leaders in the government brigham young was the actual governor um so uh, in fact, even after they were, as the territory was established by the national government, Mormons didn't give up the idea of Deseret. They kept meeting it as a shadow government, as Deseret. Um, so they kept thinking, okay, we're going to have this Deseret.
0: Yeah, um, and that was kind of the go. function of the Council the 50, right? The shadow government right. working mm-hmm. underneath with the intention that we're doing it right, and someday we're going to get the whole world to run under us.
1: Right. And we'll we'll get Deseret. Um, Can you
0: imagine the whole country being called Deseret now? Yeah. Um, That'd be an interesting, interesting thing.
1: So interesting. I mean, Mormons were so, such interesting people. Like, they were just like such go-getters. They, you know, they crossed the plains. They had these big visions. And so, you know, you can understand why the federal government would be very uneasy about them. So essentially polygamy was a scapegoat for the question that the federal government had about controlling the Mormons and keeping control over the territory um keeping federal control over the territory so in this of course Mormon women become pawns and this is where it really ties into suffrage um the question of statehood and where what Utah's place would be in in the United States of America, which at that point was really up in the air. So in it's actually interesting, in 1870, um female suffrage was granted by the territory legislature and no women agitated for it. They just it was it was unanimous and they decided that women could get the vote. Part of the reason that they decided that is because again, this national conversation about Mormon women being oppressed and downtrodden and we have to rescue them from polygamy. And there were actually several attempts of groups from the East to uh, give women the vote in Utah, because they thought they would vote against polygamy, and they would rescue themselves. So Brigham Young said, okay, fine, we'll give women the vote, because he knew that Mormon women would not vote against polygamy. <laughs> but again, it's women, it's, it's on this national stage, it's People talking about Mormon women who know nothing about Mormon women. They didn't. They didn't understand. They didn't feel downtrodden. They didn't feel oppressed. They wanted to participate. A lot of them wanted to participate in polygamy, and they already had children and husbands, and they risked a lot
0: to participate in this principle.
1: And so they um, Brigham Young said, "All right,
0: fine, we'll give them the vote." No, wait. <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you one question about that because it does seem. That in this scenario, men of both political powers want to use these women as pawns in a way. Is that fair or is that maybe diminishing their uh, participation in this?
1: No, I don't. I think that's fair. Um, I think that's fair because this is in 1870. So in 1870, they give women the vote in the territory and they're like, okay, you can vote. Of course, this is voting not being able to hold office. Being able to hold office didn't happen until 10 years later in 1880. And so the act, the act was signed and Mormon women voted. <laughs> Utah, I mean, there's a lot of confusion for a lot of people about whether or not Utah was the first state to allow women to vote. Wyoming voted in December of 1869 to allow women to vote. Utah It happened on the 10th of February in 1870. So it was a few months later, but Utah actually had the first election happen after that. So women got the vote by the legislature in Wyoming first, but women actually voted in Utah first. So again, it's this crazy contradiction where everyone in in the national stage is saying women, Utah women are so oppressed, but Utah women are literally the first women in the entire country to vote in an election. And that was Sarah Young. She's a grandniece of Brigham Young. She was um, reportedly the first first woman to vote. And so, you know, Susan B. Anthony called for women to migrate un- en masse to Wyoming and Utah. <laughs> Probably mostly Wyoming because she really hated polygamy. But she's saying like, look to all these Eastern women, look, they have the vote. Like all these women in the West are actually like, paragons of equality. And so she's pointing to the West and saying, look, they're integrating women in such greater ways. So um, at that point, like I said, women, there were no, there was no suffragettes. Men gave women the vote essentially to prove to the national Congress that women were not oppressed in Utah. And like you said, it was men talking about women at this point.
0: And of course we want to point out that these are white Mormon women you know, native women in Utah that were wives, I don't think probably would have been considered. Right. I don't know that we know of any native women that voted.
1: Right. Um, and like you said, there were native wives. It wasn't terribly common, but I think it, there, there definitely were. And, and, I, I don't, I don't know about the status of Native American women in this particularly. Again,
0: I'm not an expert.
1: Elise Boxer but, is going
0: to come on and we can talk about that and we're going to oh, talk yeah. about that, so.
1: Well, and I think too, it's, um, yeah, it, 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 it was definitely white polygam, largely polygamous women
0: who are, who are part of,
1: um, the what, suffrage movement. Were need.
0: there any, um, restrictions as far as class goes? Uh, we know that, women that were more connected to prominent leadership and, from what I know, more centrally located, like in Salt Lake City, had access to this, right? I don't hear a lot of women in, say, central Utah doing a lot of um, activism Engagement. like this, yeah. Well, okay, so
1: first, um, at first, it, like I said, um, there, the first thing that actually happened in January of 1870, and that was, you know, right before they got the vote, Women, this is so, so, so interesting. 3,000 women, 3,000 Mormon women gathered at a rally on Temple Square in the Tabernacle. It's crazy. Like, just think about that. Like, I love think it. Think about what we, what we did with ordained women, like, you know, going to the Tabernacle, trying to get in, et cetera. In 1870, 3,000 women gathered in the Tabernacle and they, um, they met not not necessarily to support suffrage but they gathered to create a conversation against the anti-polygamy legislation so mormon women were reading in the newspapers all about themselves things that weren't true and so they gathered together and they were like no we're going to we're going to tell our own story and we're going to fight this anti-polygamy legislation again they they are polygamists and so and even if they're not polygamists they support the prophet And so 3000, I'm just like loving, 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 and like wishing that there were a picture of this 3000 Mormon women gathered together to do political organizing. You know, it was covered in the newspapers there in the New York Herald that said, um, in logic and in rhetoric, so-called degraded ladies of Mormonism are quite equal to the women's rights, women in, in, in the East. And then there was essentially, uh, now after they started meeting and organizing mormon women were being compared to the other national suffragists and, say, and saying you know they're not degraded they are equal and just as smart and just as capable as all these other women so they really they they met together in this huge gathering and said nope we're going to tell our own story and it's not that we're oppressed so it was super super interesting at that point after they got the vote they started organizing not not necessarily for suffrage because they already had the vote but they started organizing to tell the true story of polygamy in Utah what they felt was the true story and of course there were also women who were against polygamy a lot of the the non-mormons in the area started fighting suffrage because they they you know it doubled the voting population in Utah and they felt like that gave the mormons too much control over the government and so non-mormons really started Fighting against suffrage, and they didn't want Mormon women to vote. So essentially, what happened? And and you had a previous podcast about the Edmunds Tucker Act, but in 1887, so Mormon women got to vote for 17 years. In in 1887, female suffrage was revoked by by Congress, by the U.S. Congress. So they had the vote for 17 years, given to them by the territory. And then the National Congress took it away. And so, again, Mormon women are these pawns in this political question about whether or not Utah would become a state. And the primary reason why Utah was not allowed to be a state is because of polygamy. So there were all these, like, debates in Congress about, you know, about uh, polygamy and about whether or not Utah should be a state and whether or not they should, could participate in the federal government at all, even as a territory. Um And so after Utah—so women, like I said, they had the vote for 17 years. They participated in elections. They voted. Um In 1887, they took it away, and that's when Mormon women started organizing to get the vote back. They actually used—it was sanctioned by the church. They actually used the Relief Society— To organize. So that's what that was a really long answer to your question. But in in 1887, it spread. It wasn't just in Salt Lake. It was they were using the Relief Society chapters in every basically every city in Utah, um, or very very many cities in Utah uh, to organize for suffrage. So it it spread not just from Salt Lake, um, but to a lot of other cities in 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 the state. Um, really really so, quick just
0: a side question so yeah, um yeah. meanwhile like there's all these this like sort of intersecting shame that Mormons have with this past and this history and polygamy and then we go through this whole century of cover up from it and distancing ourselves but polygamy is really important to getting the vote right as you've just laid out for us extremely important so, and i
1: think a lot of that shame Anyways, I think a lot of that shame comes from the fact that they literally had to hide so that they wouldn't be prosecuted.
0: So, when you're like yeah. in these museums and stuff, they've got the dress of silk, but I mean, is there an acknowledgement from the larger historical community about this critical role that Mormons play? Or is it kind of, you know, Marginalized as a side story because no, no, no. of the it's shame? Very big.
1: Okay. It, it's covered, you know, Susan B Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a few others wrote this huge like multi-tome what they call the History of Suffrage in the United States, and there is Mormon women and the question of polygamy is covered in that in that volume. And so, and then actually Susan B Anthony wrote to I think it was Emmeline Wells, She said, "Who could write a um Who could write the anti-polygamy perspective for us for that book? (laughs) And she wrote back, Emmeline Wells wrote back this extremely curt letter saying, if you were as interested in our perspective as you are in the anti-polygamy perspective, you know, I think we would all be a lot farther along or, you know, something like that. So essentially, it was covered. It was a very big deal. And it's. it's the role that mormon women played is is a part of the suffrage history
0: yeah i love it i think i think it's really hard that we i mean if we're going to have like a church history museum and i know that they're redoing this i would love to see a section of it devoted to this this, this is huge well, and
1: it's huge and it's so interesting because again mormon women had the vote for 17 years so when we get to the national stage a lot of the arguments about, oh, it's going to destroy families and, oh, you know, all the typical arguments that people are still using to this day um, to fight against women. the, the, The Utah case was used to say that's not true. Mormon women had the vote for 17 years. Nothing happened. Their families weren't denigrated. You know, women participated in politics, ran for politics, served in office, and nothing bad happened. So on the national stage, it was actually a very important example that the vote could be successful. And so, again, Mormon women played not just a crucial role themselves as being suffragettes, but as on the national stage as an example and a paragon of how full suffrage for women could work and could be successful. And so it's so interesting to me. It's not just like, oh, there were some Mormon women who were suffragettes. No. I mean, that's true, but it's not, that's not the end of it. Um, and so, yeah, if there is ever a museum, this should be a huge, huge part of it. And, and, you know, like always, the LDS Church takes the interesting parts and uses them, but doesn't, I haven't seen anything that portrays the full picture of how polygamy play, play, played such an important role.
0: Yeah, I just because we don't like to talk about polygamy. Yeah, and that's and that's a shame because this is such a great. I guess if you want to argue for the divine roles of it, uh, you can you can argue which women were arguing in the exponent. This was building up women, and <clears throat> and it was <throat> it very literally did. It did.
1: It did, and and I think the exponent is a really good um, example. And the exponent was extremely involved in women's suffrage. And like I said, in 1887, when the Edmund Tucker Act happened, the church sanctioned all of these suffrage activities. And so the Utah women, uh, joined up with NWSA, which, like I said, that was the Elizabeth Cady Stanton, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony branch of the suffrage movement. Again, that opposed the 15th Amendment. Um, so Mormon women aligned themselves with that group and they were fighting again for a national amendment. There were a lot of divisions. It's it's not like everyone supported suffrage, but for example, there was a huge non-mormon women rally at the Opera House in downtown Salt Lake against suffrage because again, they felt like it gave Mormons too much power. Um so I, so the the vote gets taken away after having it successfully for 17 years in 1888 Emily S. Richards who was the Wife of Franklin S. Richards, who was the church attorney, um, approached the church officials and she said, okay, we want a Utah suffrage association. We want to be affiliated with this national women's suffrage association. Um, and the church approved it. So it was formed in 1889. And the, this is another interesting thing. They tried to give all the leading roles to women who are not involved in polygamous marriages. <laughs> so. Just for um, PR. Right. Yep. Yeah. They wanted to say like, hey, look, we're not all polygamous. And again, the national organization didn't want polygamous women to participate. So if they chose non-polygamous women, they would be able to like serve in offices in the national organization. They could speak at the con- at the conventions. You know, these, these polygamous women faced all this discrimination. So I think that was part of the tactic to choose women as leaders in this Utah Suffrage Association who were not polygamous, because there were a lot of women who weren't, you know, as well. So we, we've we got um, Emily Richards. Then we also have Margaret Kane, who was there was a delegate to Congress, the territorial delegate, and it was his wife. Um, and so they were appointed to organize the state. And so they they organized all these local units throughout the whole territory. And they were very tightly associated with both the women's exponent and the Relief Society. Now the women's exponent just like took the suffrage cause and ran with it, um, with extreme zeal. They had tons of articles about suffrage suffragists were really, uh, they were reported in the news of the exponent. So they would say, you know, so-and-so went to this convention, spoke about this. It was a, it was a real badge of honor and like a very, very active time for these Mormon women. So, um, You know, we've got like Sarah Kimball, who, you know, started the original sewing circle in Nauvoo. She's saying like, you know, sisters are unworthy of the names we bear and the blood in our veins if we remain silent. And we have, you know, Eliza R. Snow. She's saying it's high time that we rise to the dignity and speak for ourselves. We are not inferior to the ladies of the world. You know, we have all these Mormon women are really saying like, we make our decisions. We have autonomy over our lives and we're going to speak for ourselves. And they're organizing all over the state to organize for suffrage.
0: And not just that. I mean, they're, I mean, they've been doing now the release study for a long time. They write their or like they have a proven known record for getting stuff done and doing it well.
1: Well, and, That trend, like the Relief Society was obviously founded in Nauvoo with Emma Smith, and Joseph Smith said it was to be organized as a kingdom of priests, which Sarah Kimball is the one who pointed that out. But they have this like highly sophisticated organizing strategy. You know, Mormon women are excellent political organizers, they're also excellent public speakers. That that was a big thing at the time. You know, Susan B. Anthony actually visited Utah, and Susan B. Anthony would travel on train all across the country giving speeches because they had no other form of entertainment. So these visiting speakers were like a big part of entertainment at the time. And Mormon women would also participate in those because they were excellent public speakers. They were very skilled, like I said, skilled orator- orators. They were um, very highly politically organized, and they had their Relief Society already uh, in place, in every every place where Mormon women were, there was a Relief Society. And so that organization served as the backbone for all of this suffrage organizing, Um, which is, it was just like incredible, very, very sophisticated for the time. And again, I think the national groups learned from the Mormon women how to organize, how to be community organizers, <laughs> which was really, really impressive. So Mormon women are getting organized. Mormon women are trying to speak for themselves in defense, largely in defense of polygamy. Um, but really the progress of the suffrage bid, the re- re- regaining suffrage in Utah was really stalled until 1890. So the church was facing a lot of pressure from the national government. They were not going to give them statehood until they abolished polygamy, period. It was not going to happen. So. In 1890, uh, there was an official declaration to end plural marriage, which again, I mean, I, I think you do a really good job in these podcasts of, of conveying nuance because they had been fighting so hard, all of these women, to defend themselves against the federal government, against the suffragettes in the East who thought that they were oppressed and, you know, discriminated against them. And then 1890 comes, and they're like, okay, never mind. We're not going to do polygamy anymore. So it was really abrupt, very difficult transition. And they were already married. Like, they were already married. They already had children. You know, this was a very, very complicated legal, ethical, and religious issue. Especially
0: years and years and generations of complicated relationships with the federal government. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: So they caved. And there was a revelation and they ended the practice under much duress. So Congress in, uh, that, that happened in 1890. In 1894, Congress passed the Enabling Act, which allowed, they opened the door to statehood. So essentially, Utah said, okay, we're not going to do polygamy anymore. Congress says, okay, fine, you can be a state. And that, once that was reconciled, um, the women really swung into action uh because, and this was under the recommendation of Susan B. Anthony, she said, okay, now you're going to get statehood. Do not let your constitution get passed without suffrage, or you will never get it. She's like, don't, you know, she, again, they were, I guess Susan B. Anthony kind of had a lot of frenemies. She was very good friends with Emmeline Wells and some of, some of the other suffragists in Utah. So they did communicate, they did strategize, but she also hated polygamy. So it was complicated. But she essentially said, like, do not let the Constitution pass without suffrage or you'll never get it. And so with statehood in sight, they started really, really organizing and resolved that they, the right, both the right to vote and the right to hold office would be put into the new Constitution. So, again, these Mormon women are like brilliant political activists and organizers. They got both parties, both the Democrat and the Republican parties, to endorse suffrage in their platforms. Um, and then they had this whole grassroots campaign to apply pressure to the Constitutional Convention. Because just like in the United States, when we started, uh, when they, in, you know, first had the Constitution, they had a Constitutional Convention. And that also happened in Utah. So essentially, in 1895, I guess I, I wrote down that 19 of Utah's 27 counties had official suffrage organizations. And most of, and again, at this point, they're lobby- lobbying their own people. At this point, they're lobbying uh, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. And most Mormon delegates were inclined to vote for enfranchisement. Again, they had had it. Since, in in my opinion, since 1830, Joseph Smith allowed women to vote in the formation of the church, and they had also had the political vote for 17 years. It had been taken away from the federal government, by the federal government, and at this point, Mormons just, like, hate the federal government. It's like a love-hate relationship, and they had persecuted them and jailed them for polygamy, and so... And they had also taken away suffrage. So it was popular. Um, A lot of people supported suffrage. Sorry, it's early in the morning here, so I got a frog in my throat. Oh, you're fine. Um, So essentially, but some influential people opposed suffrage. One of them was B.H. Roberts, (laughs) um, who was a polygamist. And the reason he opposed suffrage... He was a member of the seventy. He was very influential. He was a Mormon historian, um, and he opposed suffrage. And I quote, <laughs> because
0: he thought it would make Utah a freak state. A freak state. I like that. Not a, freak a free state. state. That's F R E A K freak state. <laughs> freak
1: state. So because no other states had suffrage at the time except for Wyoming, and so he thought because. It they had to come up with this constitution and then it had to be approved by Congress. And he thought if we approve suffrage, it won't be approved by Congress. So he thought, again, it's this question of um suffrage and statehood. You know, are we going to be able to become an official state? We already gave up polygamy. You know, it's going to, if we, if we hold on to suffrage, it's going to cause us a lot of damage.
0: And, and again, we see this, this tension forming of, are we a peculiar people or are we not? Like, do we want to be mainstream or do we not?
1: Well, and the irony of it is like, he's a polygamist (laughs) and he's saying the reason we're going to be a freak state is because of suffrage. It wasn't because of suffrage. It was because of polygamy that we are a freak state, you know, Uh, and suffrage movements were happening in all states. We were the only state where polygamy happened. (laughs) So, you know, he, he staunchly argued against suffrage, um, and ironically, you know, he later became, um, was elected to the House of Representatives nationally, but he was refused his seat because he was a polygamist. So, again, we bring in Susan B. Anthony, and she was <laughs> apparently very involved in Utah politics. She she uh, encouraged women not to vote for him in the election. Again, this is in 1898, after, after we became a state, But then once he got elected, and Congress refused to seat him. Susan B. Anthony was very principled and she said, I, I campaigned against him, but now that he is elected, it's unconstitutional not to allow him and he she um she wrote a letter to Congress saying that they should seat him. Which they never did because he was a polygamist. So again, it's it's not the suffrage that's making Utah a freak state as much as the polygamy. Because even after polygamy ended after eighteen ninety, people still had polygamous wives like, you know, the ones that they had had before. And like you have uh, or will elucidate people, polygamous marriages continued after 1890. So there's this, okay, so we're back to this huge constitutional convention in Utah. We're hammering out the constitution. Suffrage was the number one hot issue of the constitutional convention. You know, we'd, we'd already given up polygamy. And so are we or are we not going to let women have the vote in Utah? That was the big issue. Um, And again, there are a lot of non-Mormons in the territory who don't want women to vote, even women. Non-Mormon women didn't want women to vote because they felt like that would give too much power to to the church. And they also felt, again, this narrative of Mormon women are just oppressed. They're just going to vote how their husbands tell them to vote. They're going to be these puppets. Um, that was the narrative of Mormon women that they disagreed with themselves. They also, there were also the traditional arguments like, you know, traditional roles of wife and mother are threatened.
0: And Wait, can we, we true- back up? Do you identify with that of like, you can't be Mormon, you can't be feminist? Yeah. I mean, I think polygamy was wrong.
1: <laughs> and I have no problem saying that. But I think it's, it's funny because there, there's not a lot of room for nuance in the media even today and so a lot of people just want to paint mormon women to this day as you know oppressed as drones as housewives as you know housewives who have no education and no thoughts of their own which is clearly not true if you've ever read feminist mormon housewives <laughs> but it's 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 unfair but i think in the same way that these early mormon pioneers tried to control the narrative and take back their own voice, I think we need to do the same. And, you know, I have an obvious way of going about that <laughs> for me personally. Um, But I think there's a lot of different ways that we can do that. And I think it's vital. I mean, we need to tell our own stories. And again, going back to what we said at the very beginning of the podcast, if we don't tell our stories, our daughters won't hear them. And they won't hear stories of brave, courageous, intelligent Mormon women. And that's what we are. You know, I think Mormon women are very nuanced, very complicated, very interesting, very talented. And I think we need to tell our own stories and assert ourselves in the ways that we these women did. And also say, you know, this is our complicated uh, profile. This is who we are. And we want to be included with full parity into our institutions. And I think that's what we're saying, exactly. <laughs> at least to ordained women. Um, we're not saying we're oppressed. We're not saying that we aren't intelligent and capable. We're just saying we want how we feel to be reflected in the institution. And, um, and so actually, that's kind of what these Mormon like women were saying. Like, we're capable, we're smart, we're, um, we're not oppressed, but we want equality. You know, they wrote the exponent which was a totally autonomous publication. They had all of these projects. They participated really. I mean, imagine today if some of the most important people in the national women's movement were Mormon women. Cause that's how it was. I think that what we would have to add is our own story. You know, this is who we are. We're complicated. We're involved in an institution that's heavily patriarchal, but this is, this is who we are, you know, so I think, yeah, it's very it would be very inspiring.
0: um are there any other Mormon stuff that you want to highlight? Yes, um, so
1: I wanted to finish really quickly because we did get the vote the vote back, <laughs> so we had this constitutional convention. Mormon women uh submitted twenty four thousand signatures to the Utah Constitutional Convention, so again, Brilliant political organizing, signature gathering in a time where it's not like clicking a like box on a Facebook page. No, this is like signature gathering, bringing it in from all different corners of the territory. It was just like amazing. So they had twenty-five, 25,000 signatures um, and the Utah uh, Constitution did adopt um a provision that said the rights of citizens of the state of Utah vote to hold office shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex, period. So so there weren't class distinctions or anything like that in in the language of of the actual Constitution. And so we got the vote back. (laughs) And again, part of the reason that they were able to so successfully lobby is that they had had the vote for 17 years, and they were able to point to that as a time of great success. So in 1896, Utah became the 45th state, admitted to the Union, and women had the vote. So there were a lot of really amazing leading women suffragists. And and it's just so interesting to me because they, they really combined this worship and religious zeal with political zeal in a way that we don't quite see today. You know, there's a suffrage song that they wrote to the Hope of Israel. And essentially, it goes: "Women rise, thy penance o'er; sit in the dust no more. Seize the scepter, hold the van, equal with thy brother man." So they even turned hymns into suffrage songs, and really combined. Like I said, the the Relief Society was also very combined in these political issues. The whole the, the whole verse goes: "Freedom's daughter, rouse from slumber; see the curtains are withdrawn, which so long thy minds has shrouded. Lo." Thy day begins to dawn. Women rise, thy penance o'er. Sit thou in the dust no more. Seize the scepter, hold the van, equal with thy brother man. Ah, It's just so powerful. And then when you think about the curtains are withdrawn, (laughs) you know, and just recently in conference, we had a a talk from Neil L. Anderson comparing, you know, women sitting in a room and the man has to withdraw the curtain in in order for them to partake in the sun. Like how far we've come backwards, in my opinion. You know, you have women writing these amazing things, participating in suffrage, doing all these, um, amazing activi- activism and political organizing. And, and now what, what do we have? You know, I don't, I don't, I think we've, we've gone backwards. So I just wanted to really briefly touch on, um, some really prominent, uh, connections. So again, Susan B. Anthony, she had visited Utah when she came in 1895. Anna, uh, it was her and Anna Howard Shaw. They visited Utah, and they the women again. These amazing organizers pre- presented a petition of thirteen thousand names from Utah win- women pledging to support national suffrage. So at this point, Utah women had already won their own battle, and so they turned to the, to the national suffrage and supported uh, national suffrage again as this great example of how women could successfully have the vote and just one really brief caveat which i think is amazingly hilarious you know in that there was also a british british suffrage movement but i found a new york times article from 1911 that the entire article is about how mormon missionaries were using suffrage in utah to recruit british women so uh 1911 yeah in 1911 I and mean, you can link to it. Um, I'll send I'll send you the link. But because British women didn't actually get full suffrage until 1928, and so missionaries were saying you should move to Utah because you you should convert to Mormonism and you should move to Utah because we gave women suffrage, <laughs> which is like so brilliant. I just like love 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 that story. So we were very well proud. It works. Sh-
0: Picture. <laughs> Puts her down to Nabi where they're arguing for women's rights, you know, and someone comes in, a Mormon missionary shows up to Sybil and says, hey, come to, come to Utah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, maybe they left out the polygamy part. I'm not sure. At that point, you know, allegedly the practice was disavowed. So just to highlight a few amazing women, um, one was Emmeline B. Wells. She was married three times, but her third husband was Daniel Wells, and so she was his seventh wife. So you have this very prominent suffrage, uh, very prominent uh, figure in the national suffrage movement who was a seventh wife. You know, again, it's this interesting thing where Mormon women are trying to counteract a narrative they don't think is fair to them. And so, uh, of course, she's going to defend polygamy because she was being excluded from meetings for being a polygamist. But again, that, that doesn't mean she didn't have complicated feelings about it. But again, it was a political move. It was, it was very tied to the politics of it all. So, Emmeline Wells, she, uh, she participated in the Women's Exponent. Uh, she was editor. Uh, she was a very prominent national figure. She went to all these different, na- um, National Women's Suffrage Association conferences in Washington, D.C. She spoke many times. In public, again, she argued that polygamy gave women freedom so that was a big um talking point for these suffragists who well, who participated in, life, in polygamy really is did. that it gave them freedom
0: it really did in her life right like
1: right yeah. i mean she could travel she could um you know she if you have seven or six other wives <laughs> to cuz when you think about it at the time it it is complicated because if if the whole 100% of the um Burden of rearing children falls on you. It's not like they had equally shared parenting or cooperative parenting back then it was it totally it one hundred percent fell on women and so how could you be like a national um public speaker and go on like a speaking tour if you had to take care of your children so there were other wives to help out and and in some polygamous marriages like you've talked about, the wives supported each other. And, and really helped the other women achieve their goals. So in some ways, that probably was true. It probably did give her some measure of freedom. And in fact, Martha Hughes Cannon, who I want to talk about just really quickly next, she said, she said that if a husband has four wives, she has three weeks of freedom every single month. Oh
0: wow.
1: <laughs> so she, wow. she said that in a San Francisco Examiner. So she told a reporter, like, it's because my
0: husband has more
1: wives, I have freedom.
0: You know, and that's interesting because I feel like in some ways, these Mormon suffragettes started to see polygamy as like the solution to the same problem. Like Victorian women in the West were living with the same idea of women's property and dealing with all of these sort of sexist issues. And uh, the vote was obviously a solution to to start attacking those issues, but Mormon women thought, "Well, maybe we can use polygamy." You know, I don't know if it was that conscious, but they were also trying to solve the same problems within their own framework. I think it's an interesting tension there. Mm-hmm.
1: And like it had a lot of first. Again, it was very very complex, and I think you're covering that in this entire series. It can't be covered in one podcast, but in for some people, it did free them. I think that's true. I mean, if you were a woman in 1888, <laughs> you didn't have a lot of child care options. You didn't have a lot of career options. But this Martha Hughes Cannon became a physician. And her husband supported her in going to medical school. And, you know, she was the fourth of six wives. and And he was 23 years her senior. So... Would she have be able to come a Would she have been able to become a doctor if she hadn't had other polygamous wives to take care of her three children?
0: I don't think so. It's, it's likely no, and and I should point out she too was tortured with her marriage quite a bit, and which makes it another sort of interesting side note is that polygamy freed women so long as it sort of made them women that were. Not tied to marriage anyway. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if they were locked into a monogamous marriage, the responsibilities were a lot heavier in a lot of ways. Right. And it, and Martha Hughes Cannon
1: was tortured for like some pretty good reasons. She was exiled for two years, um, so that she wouldn't have to testify against her husband, uh, to the federal government. So she actually lived in England, Switzerland, and Michigan. And then after two years, she came back. So she had her baby she like took a baby and was exiled in like uh in 1886 so that's like a crazy ordeal to have so to go through a, as you know, a, as a woman live as a single a woman abroad
0: vacation. you can you can look at it however you want right she was right. on a nice world yeah. tour
1: <laughs> um so so she she returned to Utah again she became a doctor. She was actually a featured speak, speaker at the Chicago World Fair in 1893. Um she she became very prominent on the national stage. Um in no, on November 3rd of 1896, uh Martha Hughes Cannon became the first female senator elected in the United States of America. So she was not only a doctor. <laughs> she not only got elected to the state Senate, she also beat her husband. He was on the same ballot. She ran as a Democrat. He ran as a Republican in Salt Lake County, and she won. That's
0: amazing. It's crazy. Like, just,
1: it's so, so interesting. So in the Salt Lake Herald, they, it, it said, it's this amazing quote. It says, Miss Maddie Hughes Cannon, his wife, is the better man of the two. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so she won. She she served two terms in the Utah State Legislature, and then at the end of the second term, she actually had a baby while in office. Fantastic. So good. Um, okay, so last quote from her, which is just like so, so, so good. Um, she traveled to Washington, D.C., um, and she spoke, and she said, Somehow I know that women who stay all the time um home stay home all the time have the most unpleasant homes there are. You give a woman who thinks about something besides a cook stoves and wash tubs and baby flannels. And I'll show you nine times out of 10, a successful mother.
0: Wow. Look at that Mormon feminist. Isn't that crazy? I love she's it.
1: telling people, she's talking to a congreg- congressional committee in 1898. And she's like, If you don't think about anything else besides the home, you won't be a successful mother. (sighs) I think, you know, and as a human rights attorney, I think it's interesting that in almost every other sector in society, women have progressed in education, in political representation, in the workforce. But religion, and particularly our religion, is one of the very few places where I think women have digressed. Yeah.
0: No, her story is great. This is fantastic.
1: Oh, it's so good. Um, okay, so the very last I want to end on this amazing, amazing note. Um, so uh again, Martha Hughes Cannon first again, Utah I think it's just so crazy to think about. Okay, Utah's Utah Mormon women were the first women to vote in the United States of America. Uh they were the first Senator elected uh, in the United States of America was Martha Hughes Cannon, a Mormon polygamist woman. Um, And the the craziest story of all, or one of the most amazing, in 1912 in Kanab, Utah, which is in southern Utah, um, they made history for the first time in the United States of America, the entire board, including the mayor, was comprised of women. So Mary uh, W. Howard was the mayor. Uh, who, actually, that was an assumed name because she used a fake name to escape polygamous persecution. (laughs) Um, so she was the mayor, and then there were four councilwomen, Vinnie Jepson, Tamar Hamblin, Blanche Hamblin, and Luella McAllister. So it was the, so we had the first woman to vote, we had the first female senator, and we had the first, um, uh, town council entirely comprised of women in the United States.
0: I love it. Yeah. Look what Mormonism uh, could do. Ah, so cool.
1: So they they served a full term. They did all kinds of things. They did all kinds of interesting legislation in the town. And uh, three of the five women gave birth while in office. Uh, and when they finished their term, they hoped that women would replace them, but they were replaced by all men.
0: Wow. So, so crazy. I, like, it I just love it. so
1: rich and complicated.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think, I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about it in this series, but, you know, the war really changes a lot of things. It makes our culture sort of entrenched to this sort of domesticated separation of roles and all of that. But to see what we could accomplish, to see how it empowered women like this, I I think that that kind of gives us shines a light on our potential, you know, and mm-hmm. turning our hearts to our fathers, turning our hearts to our mothers, so to speak, and seeing
1: Absolutely. who they were. And I
0: think, you know, it's every it, this happens in every movement,
1: actually, women are very integral to every movement, every revolution, every, you know, you you even see this in the Egyptian revolution that happened like women were very very active. And then once the revolution is, is successful, women get pushed aside. Um, I think that's probably somewhat true of, of Utah history. Um, when, when we were, when we were battling the federal government, when we needed women so desperately, um, to prove that we weren't oppressive, they were useful. Um, and they were allowed a lot of leeway. And also when you imagine like the, the, the frontier just like how the frontier existed. It was basically like the Wild West. Um, so control and domination of women was not your first priority. Um, but as we became more established, as we did achieve seathood, you know, I think that's part of the reason Susan B. Anthony said, do not let the Constitution pass without women being included in it, because you'll never get it after that. And so I think she was right. You know, for all of her flaws and and for all of these other things that we've talked about, she was right. You know, women have to, we really have to edge our way in because at a certain point we're going to be excluded again. I think that's happened in a really extreme way in Mormonism, um, but it doesn't have to be the case. And I think, you know, we look at these examples, we look at these amazing, amazing women who were senators and doctors and mayors. Um, you know, and, and, and it, it can be like that again. There's no reason why Mormon women can't claim a place. I think Mormon women are ex- exceptionally talented. I think we're exceptionally good organizers. I think we are exceptionally good speakers. I think the church and our participated, participation in the church as Mormon feminists, though so complicated, <laughs> I think I, I can uniquely speak to that. Um, <laughs> I think it's complicated, but it's also given us a lot of tools. And we can use those tools to liberate ourselves. We can use those tools to be not only leaders within Mormonism, but within, um, the country as a whole. And, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment has not passed. And we can do a whole nother podcast about that. And I would love to do a podcast about that. But, uh, I think Mormon women must, given our history, play a bigger part in
0: seeing that to fruition. Absolutely. Well, and Kate, thanks so much for coming on. I, as, as you're talking, I realized that some people probably want to know updates on you and about Kenya. And I know that we did a podcast last week that, like I said, it's in the queue for a while. So everyone, this is, we're doing this on conference weekend. So, um our order's a little skewy because this is coming out this week, but Kate will be talking about where she's at and all of that. So don't worry. Yeah. I, I just wanted her to come on. So thanks so much for giving us this great outline. Thank you so much. Yeah, and um again she'll come back for more episodes of Year of Polygamy. So thank you for listening uh to the Year of Polygamy series on the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Thanks, Lindsay.